reason I, I sort of uh, uh, am aware of this is because after the book was published, I heard from two children of the of people who actually flew in in the race, um, and uh, I, I and I know of a third. So there are still you know uh, there are still people alive today whose whose fathers uh, flew in the race. So when you think of it in, that, in those terms, where it, it doesn't seem that long ago. Well, let's let me uh, intro you, and we'll get we'll talk about the book. Okay. okay, sounds good. On the line with us today, John Lancaster, the author of the Great Air Race, and that's from 1919, a race that maybe some of you don't know about, but across country they had to cross it twice, right, John? I mean, back and forth across the USA. Well, that was the idea. It, it didn't actually work out that way for most of the contestants, um, but uh, we can talk about why uh, at, at some point. But um, yes, the plan was a round trip contest, two groups of aviators, one starting in Long Island, the other starting in San Francisco, uh, flying across the country from east to west and west to east, and then back the other direction. And, you know, when you, you think back and, and now, of course, that's over 100 years ago and all that stuff. You think, well, these were the, the pace setters, the pioneers, which they were, but it was also contested. It was, it was, uh, you've got, you know, in John, in your book, you, you, you document the, the lot of resistance to this and, and criticism, uh, that it was reckless, that it was, uh, endangering the lives of these people, uh, editorials. And it was, it was an interesting, uh, event, wasn't it? Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, in, in some ways it was, you know, a, a lot of people at the time, not, not, not necessarily everyone, but certainly there was a lot of editorial comment at the time that it was kind of a fiasco and a waste of lives because there were a number of uh, fatal crashes, many, many crashes, of course, most non-fatal, but, but nine people died total, including two pilots who were killed just on the way to the start in Long Island before the race even uh, began so looked at in those terms you had you know 63 pilots and 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 nine fatalities uh that's a pretty high uh, uh mortality rate and and people did have to ask themselves uh what what was you know whether it was worth it the uh contest was actually engineered by billy mitchell who was considered the father of the u.s air force he was an army air service uh, brigadier general and a world war one hero and his idea was to uh, promote aviation. Um, and in some sense, I argue that he succeeded, but at a very high cost. Right. And of course, you paint a very vivid picture of Billy Mitchell, a uh, character himself, uh, really uh, somebody who, who uh, my way, the highway kind of thing. Right. I mean, because he, he took it to the public, uh, you know, in, until the very end when I guess he got uh, booted out of the uh, the military. But uh that's that's all in your book. I mean, you you kind of uh, run through what he was going through, uh, a to get the race going, and then you know to kind of support it, put it on the bright side um, when when there was criticism of it, and then uh, you know then the fact he kind of used it at, at the end is sort of oh you know, look look you know we moved ahead, and uh, as you say that's that you could say he he did. Yeah, I mean, it, it, he failed in his immediate political goal in the sense that, you know, he this was in 1919. It was just months after the end of World War One. And he was very concerned that the uh, United States was going to stop investing 
in aviation. There was no commercial market for airplanes at the time. And so, uh, you know, he wanted to stimulate public support for aviation. He wanted to stimulate commercial aviation. He also wanted to, you know, get Congress to, to uh, uh, spend more money, uh, you know, to keep air aircraft manufacturing alive. Um, and, uh, and, he, and he had another goal, which was to create an independent air force. The, the air service at that time was part of the army. Um, and so he, he, he was crusading for an independent air, air, air force like the uh, Royal Air Force in, in, the, in Britain. Um, so those were his immediate political goals. He failed in those immediate political goals. The Congress continued to cut the air service budget uh, and, um, and, and independent air service air force did not uh, was not created until after World War II in 1947. Um, ha however, um, he did generate tremendous public excitement, uh, stimulated the development of airfields uh, along the route, uh, and you know I think arguably uh, sort of pointed the way towards uh, commercial aviation and made aviation seem sort of more real and immediate than than many people had uh, uh, had assumed at the time. We're talking with John Lancaster about the Great Air Race, uh, this cross country uh, endeavor from 1919, which involved. Planes that we would look at now, those of us that aren't uh, versed in, in aeronautics, is pretty primitive. Uh, and, and I know you're a pilot, John, and, and you've, you've got a chapter in here on, on your own flight uh, recreating the, uh, the great race. Um, that's, but, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, you wonder, and of course, this is all retrospect, hindsight, whatever you want to call it. Had, had we not had a Billy, a Billy Mitchell or Prager or those folks that you document in your book that were really pushing for air support to air service, if we'd just been lackadaisical and maybe follow the military lead, the government lead that, well, we can't do that right now, would it have, ha it would have happened anyway in your mind? I mean, surely we would have had air travel, uh, but maybe not at the rate. Well, what's your thought as somebody who's, you know, a flyer? I, I I, I think it gave it a nudge. I mean, uh, yes, obviously, I, I mean, air travel was coming. It was already happening in Europe. There were already, within months of, of the armistice that ended World War I, there were already several commercial airlines operating uh, between major European capitals. It just hadn't started yet in the United States, but it was obviously coming. And um, uh, I think that, uh, you know, I, I think that it, it, it clearly gave it a nudge. Uh, you know, there was, for all the editorial criticism, there were also a lot of editorials talking about, you know, how this was the first practical demonstration of the airplane. And, and uh, you know, it showed that, you know, air, air travel, reliable, regular air travel was right at, the, at our doorstep. Uh, so it, it sort of changed people's mindset. Now, it's very hard to quantify you know uh, uh, what might have happened if 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 the race hadn't occurred, but but you know you can point to some concrete uh, concrete uh, uh, effects. Uh, for example, as as I mentioned, that you know a number of communities along the the route that Mitchell's flyers followed uh, decided to develop their own airfields, uh, and that was obviously a, an important you know developing an air an air aviation infrastructure in the country and separate and apart from the question of airplanes and, and aviation technology so you know it had some effects um but i think it was more of sort of a psychological shift than anything else so it's it's very hard to sort of pin down um uh you know precisely what it meant in terms of uh you know how how, how much of a, of a of a boost it gave to aviation but surely it gave it did give some boost to aviation and we we're uh you know not to be discounted either are the big crowds 
that came out, because uh, as you mentioned in the book, uh, in some of these places out west or, or smaller towns, whatever, they really hadn't seen a whole lot of air, air travel. And, and the still a novelty uh, to have somebody flying overhead and, and doing these things that uh, we, we take for granted now. Yeah, it really did kind of, it, it, for, for some communities along the route, it really did uh, really sort of introduce uh, airplanes uh, to the heartland. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, a lot of people had seen airplanes in magazines or whatnot, but there were actually some, some communities, particularly in the Rocky Mountains, like Rollins, Wyoming, there had never been an airplane land uh, to land in, in Rollins, Wyoming. It was at 7,000 feet. It's on the Continental Divide. And the townspeople were convinced that no, no airplanes in the race would be able to fly that high. Um, and so they didn't even bother preparing an airfield. So they sort of threw together an airfield at the last minute, a couple of days before the start of the race. Um, so, yeah, in, in that sense, it, it, it definitely captured the public's imagination. It's like, wow, these things are real. And, and it was also reflected in the media coverage. Just to give you one example, the New York Times, uh, then as now the nation's paper of record, uh, ran 30 stories on the, on, the, uh, on the race, and eight of those were on the front page. So that tells you something. Talking with John Lancaster about the Great Aries. John, you know, I, I always think of these things as I go through the book and imagine uh, your uh, deliberations, your efforts to, to write this story, because you've got all these different people, 63 different contestants. Uh, you've got the, the leaders, uh, Billy Mitchells and the government people, military people. You've got to go back and, and explore this thing 100, 100 plus years ago. Uh, that that was a little uh, quite an undertaking. How long did it take you? Well, it's hard to say because I wasn't necessarily working on it full time, uh, you know, until I got a book contract, which was in early 2019. Um, but, you know, I, I did several years of, of serious research, I would say. Uh, most of it, the, the, the most consequential material I found was in the National Archives. Uh, you know, one thing the uh, U.S. Army does uh, is generate a lot of paper. And so there were there were very, very God bless them. <laughs> yes. So it's, 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 it's a gift to, uh, you know, writers of popular. Right. There's, a, there's a rich historical archival record uh, at the National Archives. I mean, just hundreds and well, thousands of pages of documents, literally thousands of pages of uh, telegrams and weather reports and invoices and, you know, pilot reports and, you know, detailing every aspect of the race. So that was a huge, huge find. And then, of course, contemporaneous newspaper coverage. I mean, I, I mentioned the New York Times, but this was heavily covered by uh, every national paper in the country and local papers, because you can imagine in Binghamton, New York, or you know, uh, Rollins, Wyoming or whatever. This was like, you know, one of the biggest things that ever happened in their towns. So actually some of the best and most detailed coverage was in these local papers. Well, you had uh, one, one account I noticed, and I, I worked for a Peoria newspaper for a number of years, and uh, you had a, a quote uh, from the Rockford uh, right. editorial, which followed the race, October 1919, which basically was, was pretty, uh, and I don't know how, you know, there are others' opinions like this, but it basically predicted air travel would one day be commonplace, and yeah. uh, you know that that was a pretty pretty good uh, shot, you know, at the future. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not. I don't think that was necessarily a wildly original take. There were certainly right. a, lot of, a lot of people saying that at the time, but I think that uh, you know this did kind of draw a line under that in, in a way that that you know, it hadn't been done before. Um, and, and certainly the, the Rockford, Illinois paper was not the only, uh, you know, outlet to make that observation. 
one of the uh, characters that you uh, characters, one of the people, because these are real people, and this is a, a, a nonfiction work. But uh, Belvin Maynard, I love that name, Belvin. I, I, you don't hear that a lot. Um, this is the guy who, and I know you you kind of put an asterisk on it, but won the race um, at least you know by some measure, finished first, whatever. Um, it got credit for it. I don't know how you want to do it, but um, it, it's kind of. I don't know if sad because, you know, here he is this sort of, uh, well, let you tell it. I mean, he goes through the race as sort of this model guy. He was lucky because he didn't hit the storms that some of the other guys did, but he winds up, you know, you got it at the end there, you know, where, where you kind of do a little recap on all your major characters. And, uh, you know, with, with that, with that was sad, wasn't it? It was very sad. I mean, Belvin Maynard was uh, a supremely talented pilot. And so he was, a lot of people thought he was the best flyer in the air service. In fact, he was so talented that when he got over to France, uh, they decided not to send him to a combat squadron where he, you know, quite possibly would have been killed. But they kept him uh, behind the lines as a test pilot to, to test fly new aircraft uh, because he was just he was so good. He, he held the world record for loops more than 300 that he'd set the previous April. And uh, uh, he just he just seemed to just have an instinctive feel for flying. And he was a brilliant navigator as well. And he was a great mechanic, which was very helpful in the days when uh, engines were not terribly reliable. So uh, so he had a lot of things he, you know, going for him. In addition to luck, his timing was good. He got out early, so he missed the worst of the bad weather that delayed a lot of the flyers in the east. Um, and uh, he, you know, he, he was the winner. I think he was by there were different categories of, uh, you know, winner, but he was he was the first guy across the country and back. And, he, and, and I think he is can con we can confidently say that he was the winner of the race. Certainly, that's the way the press treated him. That's the way I view him. Um, but, yeah, I, he uh, he was also he was an ordained Baptist minister. And uh, in some ways, that proved to be his undoing, because right after the contest, a, a few months after the contest, he suggested in a statement to a temperance society, <clears throat> excuse me, that uh, uh, a, a lot of the fatalities might have been caused by alcohol consumption. Mm. <clears throat> and um, this infuriated Billy Mitchell and infuriated the Army brass. Billy and, Mitchell had his own still during Prohibition. Well, yeah, Billy Mitchell was no slouch in the alcohol department, but... <laughs> He certainly, uh, you know, I mean, it, it wasn't a fair statement by Belvin Man right. because there was no evidence that any of these guys had been drunk. Uh, he just said it. You know, he was he was he, he he took a very dim view of alcohol, and and certainly a lot of pilots like to drink, but I think most, if not all, had the good sense to do it after they were done flying for the day. Um, sure. And uh, uh, anyway, and in any case, there was no evidence that, that was a factor in any of these crashes. Um, so it, it it really it's it 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 ended his career. I mean, he he was going to leave the army anyway, but he he left under a cloud. Uh, and then he had a kind of an unhappy, uh, uh, you know, post army career, doing various things. He went on the speaking tour, uh, you know, sort of monetizing his fame to the extent that he could. Worked for the Brooklyn YMCA and uh, restored an old plane and 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 took it to a, a an air show in Rutland, Vermont, uh, in 1921. Or was it 22? Anyway, a couple of years after the race uh, and uh, and crashed, uh, you know, he, there was a mechanical failure and um, he crashed and, and was killed. At, you know, I don't even think he was 30 years old and left left behind a wife and four kids. So, yeah, kind of a tragic story there. And those are just that's just one example of, of the, some of the people that you picture that you detail in in the great race, the great air race. And that's 
you know, after you're done with that, John, after you, you've completed your research and you were, was it a lot of like, uh, and I imagine this goes on with anything that involves so many moving parts as this thing does, but did you have to figure out oh, how am I going to start this and what's the flow and do I, do I figure on this or, or did that come to you rather readily? Uh, you know, it, it's a, that's an interesting question. I mean, for me, the, the hardest part, the most, and really the most important part of, of any, any piece of writing in my view is, is the opening. And this is, I mean, I was a newspaper right. for many years. You were a newspaper reporter. If you don't hook people from the first few paragraphs, you've lost them. Forget it. Yeah. And that's true of a book. Uh, just like it's true of a magazine article or a newspaper article. Uh, but I actually, um, fairly um, early in my research, uh, <clears throat> I ran across an account of these two guys who flew into a blizzard in Wyoming. Uh, and as soon as I saw it, I was like, this is the opening. This is totally. <laughs> and and yeah. so once, once I had the opening scene fixed in my head, and I actually wrote a a version of it uh, that got me a, a book agent, you know, just, just really a few paragraphs. But, but uh, once I had that fixed in my head, I kind of knew it set the tone for the book and it, and it, it kind of, it set up the whole structure in a way, not, not to say that it's, it's never easy. It was, it's a complex book in some ways because you had two groups of flyers going in opposite directions. So that, you know, it, it, I had to really be careful to, you know, keep things as simple as I could in terms of the structure. But um you know, I, I, I would say that uh, uh, it, it all came together fairly readily uh, because of, of those th that opening scene. You know, and it, it is a great scene. And, and I can't think and you, you're a pilot, so you would know this uh, and, and probably have had had people tell you about it. Like, how do you do it? You know, how do you get up there? I mean, from, from those of people that are either out and out afraid to fly or leery about the whole prospect of leaving the earth um but it's like you know you can just picture the the time and i think most of us who you know have been to a museum or an airfield somewhere and seen these old planes you really wonder wow you know you marvel at the people that you know would would set forth on these and do all these things they did uh and you depict them in the book you know leaning out of the cockpit doing repairs while the things in the air or something i mean it's there's crazy stuff like that going on. They were a different breed in some ways. I mean, you know, you sort of had to be, have a very high tolerance for risk um, uh, to fly in, in that era. I would note, of course, that a number of the people in the race were World War I combat, combat veterans, right. um, which was, you know, hard to think of a more dangerous job than flying on the Western Front in World War I. Uh, I mean, they, you know, the chances of them living you know, more than a week or two were, were on the front were, were fairly low. So if they'd survived that, they were accustomed to risk. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and they were also, you know, they, they, they were afflicted by the same mindset <laughs> that, that affects sort of any young man, which is a sense of their own immortality um, and, uh, and a willingness to take to take risks that the mess rest of us might consider uh, unreasonable. And there was an element of competition. Don't forget these guys right. wanted glory to win the damn thing. I there were some great lines that some of these pilots gave to the press. Uh, Death was at our elbow was one I remember. <laughs> uh, just things like that, that, you know, they, there's, there's a title of a movie, I think uh, that you, you know, maybe they'll, uh, maybe they'll be after you, John, for this, because, you know, in this era of streaming, I don't know what it would take to do all these old planes, um, you know, 
that'd probably be a big production cost. But has anyone uh, brought that up the, about still, the potential of the movie? I, I, I certainly have heard that suggested a lot. This would make a great movie. I, I don't feel qualified to know whether that's true or not. Um, but, you know, uh, I, 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 I'm easy to find. Uh, if, if Steven Spielberg wants to give me a call, I'd be happy to talk to him. Very good. Well, John, the book, again, is The Great Air Race, uh, about the, the race from 1919 that uh, really, uh, you know, was is a, you know, sort of a, a point on the map here for, for air history in this country. And uh, lots of things followed that, but uh, you gave a great account of it, and we appreciate it so much. Uh, talking to us about the book today. Well, thank you for having me, Steve.